Hello, and welcome to Gilead. I'm Rebecca, one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad you found us. This week's sermon is from the last week of our sermon series, The Art of Showing Up, and I preached it. So from September 25th, 2022, here you go. There's this moment in every post-apocalyptic book I've ever read and the one post-apocalyptic play that I love. The moment comes after the main characters have established some kind of new normal. They have a companion they're traveling with or a band of companions. They've got some semblance of routine, a sense of what it's going to take. Maybe they take turns keeping watch. They figured out how much to trust each other and how to do that. They're making it for now. They have found ways in the wake of so much destruction and loss to sometimes even find some joy. And then a twig snaps. Something moves just beyond the circle of firelight. Silent eye contact is made. A hand raised, other hands move quietly to weapons. Someone else is out there. Even before I went to Texas this spring and heard our friend Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes describe us and her own church there, Galileo, as post-apocalyptic outposts, I thought about Gilead as a church at the end of the world. In fact, right before the pandemic started, Vince and I were dreaming of a sermon series called that, Church at the End of the World. It came to us at the same time, like so much does, in a flash, in the middle of a conversation with other new church pastors. One of them shared some conservative dude's doomsday article proclaiming that the progressive church in the U.S. has 23 Easter's left. Between hearing this news and the coffee break 15 minutes later, I dreamed up a graphic, something like the cover of Shel Silverstein's Where the Sidewalk Ends, but somehow it's Gilead like peering over into the abyss. Or the graphic could go more squarely post-apocalypse with a background of disaster, a wild-eyed prophet with a sign, the end is near, and then the pandemic started and it was like not a fun, cheeky sermon series anymore. It was just real. But there's more to it even than that, more than Katie's sense, which was independent from mine. She and I hadn't talked about it. And also, if you've missed it, you can find it on our podcast feed. There was more to it even than the 23 Easter's left, although, by the way, we're down to 17 now. <laughs> During the pandemic, Jack Bandy and I were talking about, I, we were talking about like new church apps that we didn't want. And we were talking about how to be, if it's possible to be church without Facebook, because Facebook sucks, but it still feels necessary. And Jack said something about not wanting to be part of the metaverse. And I said something like, we've already missed the on-ramp to the metaverse. <laughs> and then I waxed poetic about how we've missed the on-ramp and we're some kind of like joyful Mad Max remnant, not that I've seen any of that movie franchise. We're not out here for vengeance, but for joy. And I waxed poetic about how joy is a survival tool, how hope is a survival tool, and we're this band of survivors out here on the edge. And the longer I sat with it, the more times it came up, the more it seemed true that despite and in the midst of dire predictions about the future and longevity of the church, those who need it 
need it more than ever. We need it desperately. I need it desperately because of the apocalypse that is unfolding all around us. The ongoing and eternal revelation, because that's what the word apocalypse means, revelation. The ongoing and eternal uncovering of how things really are. The ongoing revelation about how high the stakes are, how life-threatening, how much is ending and how much needs to end. It seemed increasingly true that we are church at the end of the world, and also the world is always ending. The world had ended again in Jerusalem. It's 587, 586 BCE. Judah has fallen to the Babylonian Empire. The temple of God has been destroyed, which is to say that there is a complete loss of meaning and that life has no gravitational center because the ways people have worshipped are abruptly gone and completely inaccessible. And now a group of people, including the Israelite leaders, have been deported to Babylon. This is the beginning of the diaspora. This is the beginning of when scholars begin to refer to these people as the Jews and their religion as Judaism. This period of absolute destruction is their formation. In Babylon, the ones who get taken there write a song. It's a psalm. It's a Bob Marley song. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered home. But all that's over now. There's no going back. At God's instruction, delivered to those in Babylon in a letter from Jeremiah, they settle in. At God's command, they plant gardens. They find some semblance of a routine. They figure out how to be community in exile with the people they ended up there with. Not their choice, not their plan. They didn't like pick their friends. They're making it though. At God's instruction, they seek the good of the place they've ended up. At God's instruction, they find partners for their kids, their weddings and their celebrations and their grandchildren born who help harvest what's been grown in Babylonian soil. And they find ways, even in the wake of so much loss, to sometimes experience joy. Meanwhile, back home in Jerusalem, the folks there are doing roughly the same thing, although in very different circumstances, figuring out how to live with huge holes ripped in the social fabric, all those people missing, the temple leveled, they keep the home fires burning, they hold down the fort, they keep calm and carry on. Until. It's all over. Another war. Babylonians fall. As a kind of political stunt, the new king Cyrus sends the exiles home, home, after 50 years. The end of the world is over. And now they're standing together outside what used to be the temple. The priests are there, the builders are there, the remnant that stayed in Jerusalem is there, and the folks who've just come back from exile are there with their Babylonian spouses and their half-Babylonian kids are there, like pointing at the construction workers. And when the workers lay down the foundation of the temple, just the beginning of finding a way forward again, a shout goes up from the crowd, an approving shout of joy that you couldn't distinguish from the other noise going on, which was weeping, loud weeping from people in the crowd who remembered the way it had been. 
people presumably who knew there was no going back and the whole uneven roar of the crowd could be heard far away. A few weeks ago now, I invited my old friend Tristram to come swimming with me. I'd heard through another friend, and probably some of you have heard this as well, I'd heard through another friend about this kind of ad hoc Friday morning swim that happens at Montrose Harbor. When Tristram pulled up on his bike to my house at 6.45, he said, only for you, Reba. <laughs> and, and I told him, I was like, well, you're a farm boy from Vermont, like I didn't even consider being like, sorry, it's early, like I was like, and he was like, yeah, I haven't been a farm boy for years, I'm a professor who lives in Chicago. <laughs> Should I keep going? <laughs> yes. Are we gonna like, clap or is that too much for them? Okay, okay, we'll just, we'll, okay. Y'all welcome. I'll just wait now. We're getting ready to swim. Tristram and I are biking down to the lakefront, right? So he hasn't been uh, a farm boy for decades. So we get up early. We ride our bikes over to the lakefront, which, of course, was totally empty. Like, there were a few folks out, but there were no cars. And then, like, a good half mile away from where we were going yet, the parking lot started to be full. What's going on down here? I yelled to Tris over my shoulder. I imagine, like, there was a race going on or some boating thing. I don't know, Tristram called back. And then we started to bike by people carrying towels and pool floaties. Oh my God, are all these people here for this? Like we'd started to wonder where to lock up our bikes, but as we got closer to the bird sanctuary, we saw that wasn't gonna happen. Every bike rack and signpost was like spidery with bikes. We heard from the lake a group of people chanting something. It's a game, Tristram asked, and I was like, it better not be. We walked our bikes up over the little rise between the road and the water, and holy shit, there were so many people. The grass was covered with bikes, and people covered the big concrete steps. The chanting turned out just to be a group of friends in the water, encouraging another group of friends at the water's edge to leap in. What is this, Tristram asked. This is like a movie. This is like what movies are based on. I'm like particularly bad at estimating big numbers, but it's easy to imagine that the crowd was 1,500 people. 7 a.m., Friday morning, and everybody there was, per the invitation to what's apparently called Friday Morning Swim Club, they were there just to jump in the water, to get some free coffee while it lasted, and to meet each other. This past Friday morning, the water was choppy. It was too choppy. When I got there, there was a scrum of several hundred people around the guy who started it all. He was talking through a megaphone saying basically, it's too choppy. <laughs> he recommended not going in or only going in if you were a very strong swimmer and not staying in after you jumped. He recommended not going out very far. It was chilly outside, but the water, because I did go in, the water felt great, but the swells were dramatic and scary and I, I fucked up my nose on the way in. One person uh, brought her mom, uh, shout out to people bringing their parents to church. And this person and their mom jumped in right after I did. And, and when the time came for them to get out, which is the hardest part under the best circumstances, a bunch of us in the water sort of like subtly like turned our eyes toward them. Because it, it was clear that they were struggling. The swells, like you've got to picture this. You know the walls with the ladders along... 
the water level along the wall would rise and fall by like four feet. And while the water rose and fell, while the waves broke against and over the wall, you had to grab for the slimy ladder and hang on and climb up without simultaneously getting smashed into the wall. So the daughter went up first, and it seemed like she got the air knocked out of her, but she was going to help her mom get out. So she offered her arm and then pulled her up alongside, and then they stood together on the ladder for what felt like a long time while the water broke over them. She had her arm around her mom, and her mom seemed to be catching her breath. And, and those of us in the water, you could feel it. Like we wanted to give them their space, but we were all sort of tensed under the water in our goofy pool tubes to go help. Friday morning swim club started because one guy used to jump in after his 2019 training runs. In 2020, another friend joined him for a weekly swim. And last year, they invited other friends. And word spread. And by the end of the summer, they had 400 people meeting up. And now somewhere over a thousand, and, and that's it. That's the whole thing. There's no good reason to go. You can swim anytime you want, at any time of day, at any time of the week. But as our friends at the paper machete say, it's a word of mouth phenomenon. And when they hear about it, eight, fifteen, thirty, four hundred, a thousand people say to some friend, only for you. And they show up. One of the pastoral questions that I've never quite known how to answer, it's like one of the smaller questions that I have trouble answering, is about building community, making friends at church. The first church where I worked, there was a person who felt like it was only them who had trouble making friends. I'm out here and I'm lonely. They had a good example of like, look at that person. They make lots of friends. How can I be more like her? And I, I've never known how to answer because all of my attempts have led me to the lie that's like, you have to be an extrovert, which doesn't seem like the gospel, you know. <laughs> Another failed attempt is something about like, well, you kind of have to belly up to what's on offer. But, but this year, I skimmed a book that we're mentioned in. I was looking for us, basically. <laughs> and one of the writers is a pastor at an Austin church. And she said that in that church, they decided to say it this way. If you want community, you have to fight for it. And I like that. She said that for a long time in her life, she had been waiting for community to happen to her. She made the caveat that a church with a kind of DIY sense of connection and community building can lead people to stay in their own silos. Someone just yesterday asked me what my go-to sermons are. You can tell me if I get this right. One of my go-to sermons is, God is in this place and every place. All stories are holy. That is the Jacob text, the latter. Another of my go-to sermons is, we're strangers and foreigners on the earth. That's our existential condition. That's Hebrews 11. We should settle in anyway. That's these folks in exile. That's the letter they got for Jeremiah. And the other sermon I preach all the time is this one. And it is, more can be mended than you know. So there are those folks standing outside what used to be the temple. And all that's laid down is the foundation. I've always pictured it as like a single line of bricks going around this huge footprint. Good news, we're started. The shout of joy goes up. Bad news, we have lost so much. They're all right. 
these people standing next to each other in a huge crowd who have to find their way forward together in spite of the fact that they have had extremely divergent experiences. The world is always ending. And this is it. This is the moment in our post-apocalyptic story. Did you hear something? We're not alone out here. Someone else is out here. And again and again, we're going to have to figure out what's next. We're going to have to figure out some semblance of routine, how much to trust each other, and what that'll even look like. Sometimes we might even find joy. And the only thing that makes it possible is showing up. There's no other container for the hard work. There's no container for the relationships and the shouts of joy and the shared grief over real loss. There's no container for a new people coming into existence, finding their way forward out of different experiences. There's no other container for catching our breath together for keeping our eyes out on each other in case we need help. There's no container for swimming at dawn or finding joy or surviving the apocalypse that is again and again upon us. <laughs>